This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This episode of American Enough is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. Core to the American pursuit of a more perfect union has been the inclusive and respectful treatment of others. Not just for some, not just for a few, not just for those that have power, but for everybody. Unfortunately, in the long pursuit of justice, that project, that pursuit, has faltered at the water's edge when it comes to the decent respect towards women. For all the progress that we've made, from suffrage to voting rights, to minimizing the pay gap, to aiming to diversify our pipeline of talent in the workforce, we haven't gone far enough. Not only have recent headlines indicated that the respect and treatment towards women has been at dwindling lows in the highest corridors of power in this country, but it's bigger than that. The identity of our individual woman in America is not just about how they have or have not been harassed or or whether allegations of sexual assault have come after them. It's not about whether or not they just spoke up. It's about systemic challenges challenges in the workplace that don't allow us to offer opportunities to women to grow and rise. It's about individual girls in other parts of the world who are denied a basic access to education because majority ruling parties of men in those countries recognize a a descent on the horizon from that generation. It's about the ability to make sure that anyone, no matter what they look like or how they feel or how they're perceived, is respected for the content of their character and not just ogled at for the look of their aesthetic. It's about trying to find ways to right the wrongs of history by ridding ourselves of the systemic failures that have precluded far too many women from rising up to their self-deserved place in this history. And for every one of those cracks that prior pioneers, leaders, heroes, whether they're public or silent, have created in shattering that glass ceiling, there's more work that's left to be done. The allegations and findings of far too many men in recent months have been a great starting point in creating a safe space to speak out where there have been injustices targeted towards women. But there's a role that we all have to play. Whether you work in the private sector and you need to engender an environment that's more conducive for the ability for an individual and a young woman to grow, or if you're in the public sector and you need to focus on policies like paid family leave that actually work for working families, or diversification programs that help encourage STEM education and coding classes in the corridors of our most underserved communities and give those opportunities to women, or Even if you're an attorney at a law firm and you go out and battle on behalf of the respectful right for these women to have the same opportunities and access to opportunities as you or I, there's a role for us to play. And as a man, as a son, there's a role for us to play. We need to step up, we need to do more, and we need to figure out where our gaps are and making sure that, yes, all women are respected, are treated well, and aren't just defined by their silent protest, but are honored by the far reach of their talents. This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. Joining us today on American Enough is Tina Chen, who heads the Chicago's practice of the firm Buckley and Sanders and draws on more of 30 years of experience at the highest level of private practice and government service. 
More recently, she served as the assistant to the president and chief of staff to First Lady Michelle Obama during the Obama administration, and during that time also wore a special hat as the executive director for the Council on Women and Girls, which is created by President Barack Obama in March 2009 to address core elements of how we should address the needs of women and girls both here in the U.S., but even as core to our foreign policy abroad. Tina, thanks so much for joining American Enough. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. So I, I want to start with you know a, a fairly broad question, but because the conversation has been playing out in so much of our mainstream cultural media, um, what do you see as what it means to be a woman in America today? <laughs> okay, that is pretty broad, Rivker, <laughs> to start out, <laughs> but but it's an important one. I think it, it you know contained within that question is you know what 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 what's different i guess maybe about today than other points in time in our history you know on the one hand as president obama used to say you know this is the best time in history to be alive you know with the kind of technological advances that exist for the kind of opportunities that are out there um and Absolutely. i believe that's true and i think that's true for women um in america too but there's also you know no getting around that this is a tough time, too, over the course of the last year in particular, um, when so many issues that many women experience, like sexual harassment in the workplace and sexual assault and, you know, the broad, you know, violence against women um, that women experience and, 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 and the limitations on their opportunities are coming to the fore and people are feeling it very acutely. Um, they're being triggered by a lot of the public discourse that are that is out there. Um, and, you know, I think for me, what it means to be a woman in America today is, you know, to take even more seriously my responsibility to speak up and speak out, and especially to be able to speak up and speak out for those who can't do that, um, and to do what I can to keep expanding the opportunities for women and girls. Because I really, truly do believe, as, as you know, we worked on from the White House, this is something that's not just good for women and their families. I truly believe becoming a more diverse you know, workforce, a more diverse leadership, you know, a, a more diverse electorate and elected officials' bodies are, you know, it will be good for the country. It's what will keep us globally competitive. It will make our businesses more successful. It'll make our workplaces fairer. And I guess core to the challenge here, this might seem a little naive and questioning, but you know, you if you take a look at your own career, for example, um, you you've reached incredible heights as uh, an Asian American woman, uh, both you know breaking past several um, opportunities that far too often go to men, particularly partnership at law firms, for example, um, or even just landing at the highest echelons of, of public service on behalf of the United States. Um, some might take a look at, at, at your path and say that, uh, no, we've, we've got opportunities that are out there for all. You just kind of have to stand up and, and take them. Um, I, I recognize the question's premise is a little misinformed, but can you can you tell us a little bit about where you think those gaps between the women and the heroes in the modern zeitgeist that we celebrate probably are compared to the rest of the experience, either in the workplace or just day-to-day -day confrontations they may face with society? Well, here's the thing. You know, the fact that one or two people make it, or even if, you know, 15, you know, to 17% of people make it, um, 
that just leaves how many people far behind, right? Those numbers just tell you right away that when only 15 to 17% of large law firm equity partners are women, that we've left a lot of women behind. And that comes in my profession after women have been 50% of law school graduates for over a decade. So wow. in the decade that we've had that, we still haven't really cracked even 20% of women equity partners in large law firms in our country. Um, and the same number is true when you look at Congress. You know, when you look at, you know, we only 6% of the CEOs um, of Fortune 500 companies are women. Uh, one of my favorite statistics I cite a lot is that there are more men named John, Robert, William, and David on the um, S&P 1500 companies board lists than there are women. <laughs> that tells wow. you that we haven't made it, right? Because it just because a few people are able to stick with it, you know, stay in their careers long enough, overcome the barriers, and make it, you know, doesn't mean that we are at where we need to be when so many people are being left behind. I completely agreed. And to, to add a few more uh, data points to the mix, um, something that um, uh, you, that uh, our former boss, President Obama, hosted at the White House was a demo day in which um, a number of entrepreneurs of all backgrounds came and pitched their ideas of their own startups, technological or otherwise, to the president and the team. And as part of uh, that fact sheet that was issued that day, it was revealed through statistics from the National Venture Capital Association that you know only um, two to three percent of all venture-backed companies in prior years, or maybe in 2016, had gone to women-owned or women-founded companies. Um, and even a staggering 15 to 16% of patents issued by our U.S. Patent and Trademark Office um, were in the names of women. So really, any data point you cut, you start to see these staggering gaps that you mention. And you know there are steps that, that we can take, and I want to talk about the work that the Council on Women and Girls pursued, achieved, and, and what's left to be done. But I kind of want to, you know, own one aspect of this. And as as someone who had the opportunity to to be in rooms in Washington D.C. Um, and and now be in rooms out here in Silicon Valley, uh, there are ma many many instances where you realize that there not enough, there's not enough gender uh, diversity or, or equity in the room. Um, meetings in which there might be 35 engineers and only one woman in that room. Um, Undoubtedly, even the rhetoric or the language I or my colleagues that are male may use may end up being a little bit more boisterous um, if we're in such environments. So I guess my, my question I wanted to ask you is, even though there are a lot of foundational systemic challenges going on here, is there a role that men can play? And what should that role be for people like me to step up and start course correcting this, even with our micro actions and daily behaviors in the workplace? Oh, absolutely. I'm glad you asked that because it is a great question. Men are absolutely essential to this. You know, we will not solve this problem without men being part of the solution um, because, you, you know, what we're going for Vikram, is a diverse workplace where men and women, you know, where uh, minorities, where all, everyone of every type of gender identity are all e sharing equally, you know, in the workplace and succeeding equally. So that requires, you know, men to absolutely be part of the equation. And because let's let's be real, men hold the power right now. So we're definitely not changing 
changing this unless the people who are in power are part of the solution and own the solution and are actively participating in it. Um, so what can men do? You know, certainly men who are in a position to decide who comes into those meeting rooms um, have the power to sort of demand now that the people who are putting those rosters together include women. You know, and it can't be the case that, oh, I can't find a woman engineer because you and I both know there's a lot of talented women engineers out there. Absolutely. Um, so that's one of the ways in which, you know, you can start to influence, you know, who's coming into the room. You'll remember, you know, President Obama never just, just to use – never he, he never just paid attention to the heads of departments sitting around the table. He'd always go to the backbenchers, as we, as we would call them, the junior mm -hmm. staff who are in the back to get their viewpoints. Um, and I will suggest you will be surprised at the creativity and the new ideas that you can get when you expand that circle of advisors. Um, because we know in the data is really clear that a diverse decision-making body makes much better decisions and comes with comes up with much more creative solutions than one that's uniform. Um, and I also think, you know, both in the hiring, who you promote, how you treat the women who you work with, and think twice about what kinds of promotional opportunities that you give them. You know, a lot of times, even men who are very well-meaning and truly believe in this will fall back into old patterns because it's more comfortable. It is sure. more comfortable to promote someone, or if you're in a time crunch and you're under pressure, you go to somebody who you know well or who you know, you think you understand because you guys have gone out for a drink together at night or you share, you know, an interest in sports. That's a natural human tendency, but it's important to overcome those and really look objectively at how diverse is your decision making yourself when you're in that position to put more people onto your team or promote people or hire people. Really question your own unconscious bias as you're hiring people. And then finally, I would say, you know, we learned this when we were combating campus sexual assault, is that bystander intervention and bystander attitudes and bystanders speaking up when you hear an off-color joke in the workplace, when you see someone being, you know, disrespected, you know, in the workplace um, or elsewhere, you know, that that's part of how we can change the culture. And I'm so proud of all of the young men on campus who stood up when we, you know, launched the It's On Us campaign to combat campus sexual assault. Because the young men on campus, the athletes, the Greek presidents, um, the heads of the student government who are men, really owned and continue to this day to own that campaign on 500 campuses to really change how we talk about sexual assault and rape and really respect for everyone on college campuses. And, you know, they, they, they are very much our hope for the future, not just on college campuses but in our workplaces as well that that's that's a fantastic point and you know you've you've raised uh you know sons and daughters would there for for those that are looking to convey similar messages of um you know speaking up uh overcoming um you know simply being a bystander but also intervening when appropriate are there certain messages that we should continue to convey to the young men and women of America but who are raising um boys to to be more mindful of the the systemic challenges out there and embrace a more inclusive community um that you would start planting those seeds even even before they recognize that there's this tonnage of challenges out there that they're they're about to walk into 
Oh, absolutely. You know, we did a session at the White House Council of Women and Girls on um, messages in the media and in toys and in kids' books, right? You know, um, I think as parents, you know, we need to be conscious of the messages that our kids are subtly getting from social media, from popular media, from the movies they're watching and the storybooks. And that doesn't mean, you know, I'm not an advocate for like, you know, telling kids they shouldn't watch certain shows, but I think if they're they watch something that they like and there's a message that's coming across is to sit down and talk to them about, well, do you understand what happened here? My favorite example is, you may not remember this, but there was a movie that came out, um, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, when my kids were little. Oh, yeah. It was a favorite yeah, kids' yeah, book, yeah, right? And it made a movie out of it. And what they did in the movie was there was this scientist woman, you know, and she was kind of the heroine in it. But she had glasses and a ponytail when she was the scientist. But then she became the love interest. This isn't a kid's you know, cartoon. Then she became the love interest of the main guy in it. And then she lost the glasses and she lost the ponytail and she became less smart. And I used to, you know, it made me crazy. And I used to, and I had my conversations with my kids about it. Like, did you just see what happened? This is not the way the book is, by the way. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> and, but you can use even those messages as a teaching moment to, you know, you know, teach your kids a different set of values and, and a different way of, of treating one another. Um, and I think it's important to recognize that those cultural cues start coming across, you know, even in our kids' books. And, you know, you had mentioned part of those cues um, go beyond the subtlety, and some of them can be very, very real, tangible, and, and quite explicit blockers to, to growth and development. Um, and that is what a core aspect of the mission for the Council on Women and Girls aimed to do. Um, I'd love to hear more, a bit more about um, how the mission for the council was scoped. The superior audio quality on Mouth Media Network is powered by Sennheiser. And as a listener, you can receive a 25% discount on virtually any headphone, microphone, and other high-quality audio product available to purchase directly on the Sennheiser website. Just visit Sennheiser.com and enter the code MouthMediaSen, that's MouthMedia, S-E-N-N, at checkout. Today, actually, as we speak, uh, President Trump is unveiling a new national security document um, titled America First. And if you thumb through that, you see that one area in which they feel um, national security abroad can be promoted is by investing in in uh, women and youth programs. And this is something that the Obama administration, through the council and through uh, Secretary Clinton's uh, tenure at the State Department, was really, really baked into our foreign policy, in which we sort of moved aside from just treating women's issues as just simply women's issues, but rather matters of uh, education uh, matters of transportation, matters of international rule of law or of health care. How did the council play a role in kind of baking that level of thinking when it came to policies of all types and all stripes? And particularly, how do you feel that that type of mission mission um, will comport under the cloud of this administration, given that even if you had bilateral meetings or UNGA meetings at the UN last in, in a prior time that were focused on these issues that we're now dealing with the president that has a cloud of his own treatment of women, um, and so that moral authority is a bit in question. 
So I can't really speak to what the current administration is doing, but I will tell you what our thinking was and what I thought was successful about what we did. Um, you know, the president created the Council of Women and Girls as, you know, having membership across all the entire federal government. So every cabinet agency, every White House policy office was a member of the Council of Women and Girls because on the day he created it and signed the executive order, he sent the message that um, I'm, I'm creating this council this way because every part of the federal government will touch the lives of women and girls in some fashion. In the policies, the programs, and the statutes that are administered and even in their own workforce um, because as, as we hire more women into the federal workforce. And, you know, so you have the Department of Defense looking to address how women in the military were treated and, and opening all forms of military occupations to women, um, to the Department of Transportation, you know, uh, you know, making efforts to create more opportunities for women to become highway engineers, you know, in the federal system. Um, and so, you know, each part of the federal government, you know, stepped up over the course of our eight years in, I was really proud of our cabinet who fully incorporated women's issues, as you say, not as a siloed issue, but fully baked into, as you know, when we did tech and STEM, right? We talked about, you know, women's opportunities, whether it was in, you know, getting more, you know, computer engineering folks in there or in the leadership and investment space, as you mentioned earlier. Um, in the national security space, you're right. Women and girls were on the agenda, not of specialty meetings held just about women and girls issues, but in every single multilateral um, uh, meeting that President Obama had after our first yeah. year when we after we got going, every single G20, every single G8, every single um, APEC meeting or any one of the economic multilateral gatherings, he made a point and all of our staff who were working on it leading up to those big meetings made a point of putting women's, women's economic opportunity on the agenda, if that's what the multilateral was about, women's educational opportunities on the agenda, and women's role in peace and security. Uh, we had a whole women, peace and security strategy that Secretary Clinton rolled out when she was Secretary of State um, that became part of a UN resolution as well on how you know women would be fully incorporated into peace and security efforts because if women are involved when there's a conflict, um, it is more likely that peace will be achieved and peace will stick because you know women are more invested in their communities and when women are involved in stabilizing community, it becomes more stable. It's one of the things I used to say about when we worked on Let Girls Learn, our adolescent girls education strategy, is that you know it's clear that investing in girls' education and, girls, and women's economic opportunity into communities feeds into our national security and global peace and security. Um, there's data from the World Bank. There's data from state departments from both Republican and Democratic administrations that show that. But I often used to cite there's a real easy measure by which I look at the issue. And I always say there is a reason why the Boko Haram kidnapped girls who were in school in Nigeria and why the Taliban went on a school bus to shoot Malala Yousafzai. It's because the terrorists know that the best way to disrupt community and to disrupt national peace and security is to keep women uneducated and more than that, keep them and their families afraid to have their girls educated because education is really going to be the key to that. 
So I, you know, I haven't read the new national security policy from the Trump administration. I'm really pleased if you say that that, that they've got a section in there. We, as you know, had a section in our national security um, uh, strategy always that fully baked women, you know, into all aspects of our national security, both on the economic front, on the you know defense front, on the economic front, um, because you need to tack it in every in every area, not just the economic front. Um, but I would say. That that you know any progress that they can make on that is um, uh, is welcome. And you, you raise an incredibly compelling point about um, the education of women, certainly in other countries, but at all stages and in all communities. That if you have a more um, informed and educated workforce. That from that flows stability in the community and certainly economic prosperity, but perhaps um, more to the point earlier, a, a set of values that we all adhere to um, with respect to men and women um, and, and really communities of all backgrounds. Um, but one thing that's kind of challenging this broader debate is you hear a lot about how the future of the workforce is evolving. Um, even the term future of work has bit of, become a bit of a, a buzzword, um, whether we're talking about automation and new technologies um, that, I, that even our, you know, our friend David Axelrod loves to talk about on his podcast, all the way to um, more short-term work with the rise of Lyft or, or Uber or other platforms that are providing individuals a chance to connect with short-term jobs, um, how we equip people for a new type of job outlay in the future is really on the minds of, of policymakers. Um, it certainly was on the minds of the council as well when it came to educating, um, it, sorry, diversifying the, the STEM pipeline of early childhood education. But if you zoom out of just government, um, the folks that are informing this future of work are in many respects private players, companies that are coming up with these new technologies that might be more robotic in scope or automated in scope, companies that are coming up with new platforms that create these short-term gig opportunities. I'm just curious, reflecting both on your time in the council and then now that you're outside uh, of public life, what are the roles of other actors that can play a hand here, um, either in preparing for a future workforce by investing in educational um, opportunities, but but even broader than that, the public-private partnership approach seemed to have been core to, to the council's work. How can we replicate that if we don't necessarily have the bully pulpit of the Oval Office in our advantage anymore? Well, it's a great question. I mean, as you know, you know, when we talk about reforming workplaces. Um, you know, there's a public policy aspect, you know, setting paid leave standards. You know, we are the only country, one of only two countries in the world, us in Papua New Guinea, that does not have a national paid leave policy. Um, um, but, but, you know, but there's, but more importantly, you know, in the current environment, and I think we realized this, you know, a few years ago, that progress is going to be more importantly, more quickly made, you know, in the private sector itself, meaning in businesses themselves, reforming what the workplace looks like. So that was the impetus behind, you know, the first ever White House Summit on Working Families that we held back in 2014, right, where we brought, oh, that's right. That's right. you know, um, businesses together with academics and with activists and with workers themselves to talk about what the solutions would be and where we laid out the business case, you know, from our Council of Economic Advisors on all of the economic data that shows why companies themselves will be more successful 
if they have more diverse workplaces, more women on the boards, more women leading the company, more women, you know, um, in, you know, in the in the hourly wage ranks of their workforces as well. And then, in order to achieve that, you needed to overcome what I often call the structural barriers to work. You know, and why 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 do women not stay in jobs long enough to move up the the ranks? Because women more than men face the pressures of demands at home, whether it's a sick parent, whether it's an you know a sick relative, you know or a child, you know, newborn, or, you know, a sick child, um, that falls to women and they have to make choices between career and home. And, but we can make our workplaces more like 21st century workplaces than 20th century workplaces. We have the technology, we have the tools to make them more diverse, to put in things like paid leave, to put in things like flexible work hours and do better at promotion and retention and equal pay. Um, and that's some of what I'm trying to do in my new practice at Buckley Sandler is that I believe um, and my firm believes that companies want to do better, but, you know, they, you know, don't really know, um, uh, you know, how to do it. And, um, you know, and they oftentimes get stumbled over in looking at their equal pay, you know, statistics, for example, but worried that because they're going to walk into an equal pay violation. What I'm doing in my practice for my law firm is saying, you know, as your lawyer, I'm ha- I can come in and help you do better. And more importantly, we need a different approach to how we look at these issues. These issues have historically been thought of as employment issues or human resource issues um, only um, and a little bit off the center core mission of the company. And instead, we've got to really bring them into the core, the core corporate governance of the company, their core compliance issues, because you can see, for example, in what's happening for the most serious cases of sexual harassment at the top of these companies. The risks and the enterprise threat that can come if you're not managing these issues well. And on the flip side, we can also see the benefits that will come if you are addressing it, you know, taking equal pay on the way Mark Benioff did at Salesforce or, you know, diversifying your board and your key decision makers. Um, And, you know, so what I'm trying to do is really come at this not as an employment lawyer, but I'm a corporate governance lawyer by background from my 30 years of legal experience. And I, you know, I want to help companies navigate in this new environment how they can do better and how they can address these issues because, as I said, I have found most companies actually want to do it but aren't sure how to do it. Yeah, or or as you mentioned, keep it kind of simply contained as an HR issue. And if that, particularly for a smaller mid stage company, if 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 their focus is just on growth or revenue, um, then perhaps all too often the HR elements are seen as sort of an afterthought or or not core to the company's ethos or values. So changing that, I imagine, will will put many companies on the path to to that economic competitiveness that you mentioned earlier, just competing better oh. with more diversified thought. Absolutely. I mean, and there's both an upside to your business by making sure your workforce is more diversified. And what we're living through right now is there's a downside risk piece if you don't pay attention to it. So, you know, I've now talked with several, you know, companies that, you know, have grown up in the new economy and started out, you know, as a startup, didn't have an HR function. Then all of a sudden they found they got really big. And now they're all of a sudden they're employing thousands of employees across multiple countries and cities and with no HR function. And now they've got an issue of sexual harassment coming up, but they don't even know how to address it or how they could. And, you know, guess what? Investors are starting to take notice. Shareholders right. are starting to take notice. People who want to, you know, if you want to grow your company and get an investor interested, 
they actually want to know not only what kind of fraud controls that you have in place you know, and, and legal liability controls, but they're also going to start to ask, and what kind of controls do you have in place for how you're managing your workforce and how are you addressing you know, issues of diversity and gender and discrimination? Um, so, you know, and there are ways to bake this into the core central part of how you're running your business um, and in ways that won't break the bank because, you know, we ultimately, you know, maintain that these are going to be investments that will be well worth, um, worth it to you as you grow your workforce, as you live out a set of values that consumers want to buy products from and investors want to invest in. Um, and I really do believe that. I think it's both, you know, for me and my my firm, you know, I think it's going to be a winning strategy to build a practice here that supports companies. And I think ultimately for our clients, it's going to really benefit it. And, and I think it's the way in which, you know, we will make progress in really changing these workplaces um, for the entire community. I, I couldn't agree more. And, um, you know, thank you for, for not only for your firm investing in those types of efforts, but also for your broader service around these issues um, spanning the years of the Obama administration. I want to I want to wind down by um, kind of circling back to that very broad question at the top about the, the face of being a woman in America. And even though I know that's very multifaceted, um, we've learned in the in the last several months, perhaps the whole year, kind of two things. One of the 63 million people that voted for our current president, um, a good chunk of them were women. Um, and then the second thing that we've learned in the last few months were, of course, all of the the sexual harassment, sexual assault allegations that have come forward. Um, but I think we would be remiss to, um, you know, as a man myself, but frankly, as a society, to just assume that the identity of women is changing just because now more more folks are being called out about these challenges. In fact, um, these are challenges that have been a part of our way of living and conducting business and calling people on the streets for, you know, for far too long. Um, and yet, how do we make sure that when it comes to the identity of a woman, both culturally in this country, but also in the workplace, circling back to your work at, at Buckley Sanders, that there doesn't create a chilling effect? And, and by that, I mean, it could be all too easy for someone to go to over rotate in reaction to this and swing to the other side of the pendulum, wherein maybe they're afraid of a, a senior partner at a company is afraid to take a, a more junior female colleague on a business trip for what what may or may not come, or that we start to circle around our, our broader um, pop culture conversation instead of it being about the pay gap or instead of it being about educating young girls in Afghanistan, we sort of simply talk about the treatment of blurring a line between sexual assault or sexual harassment. How can we how can we all take a step to move past this concept that the identity of a woman is only tied to these um, unfortunate and, and very true challenges, but that it's bigger than that and that our roles to empower them can be focused much more on conversation as opposed to just the, the shaming that has been occurring um, in recent months? Well, I do think it's important that you know the solution here is not just simply to you know, remove a couple of, you know, bad players um, and then think that we're done and move forward because, you know, the real, you know, the real source of the issues that we have is the lack of equity 
you know, across the workplace, um, both, you know, in the bottom. We've got far too many women at the bottom of the wage scale and far, you know, far too few of them, you know, at the top. Um, and, you know, the real answer here is to be have more diverse workforces. Um, and when I say diverse, not just on gender, but with minorities and with people of all gender identities, you know, represented. Um, that's who our country is and our population is. That's our workforces at all levels should reflect that. And when you have that, when you have more people, um, more men and women working together, more minorities working together, people know each other. People will treat each other with more respect. Um, but we have to deal with the structures that are keeping that from happening, as I mentioned earlier, around paid leave and equal pay and promotion, retention and hiring. And we also have to make sure that people understand, you know, for men who are, and I've had these conversations with men who say, I don't really understand what to do. It's not that hard. It's a workplace. <laughs> there are things <laughs> that you do in the workplace with your coworkers that you don't do with your friends, you know, on the weekends and in a bar. And it's not that hard, including when you're on a business trip or including, you know, when you're out to dinner with a client. Um, you know, there are professional workplace, you know, conduct. And if we treat each other with that kind of respect, then everybody will succeed equally. Um, and, you know, go, going to the, you know, never being alone with a woman rule is, is not that. And I think there's enough people talking about with people why that is not going to be the right answer. Um, but we have to look at this holistically. And it's particularly important right now at this moment in time to make sure we keep reminding people this is more than just, you know, the manifestation of sexual harassment in its worst forms, as we're seeing right now, is the very end result of a whole series of things about women not being fully included in the workforce and equitably treated all along the way that we have to address. Absolutely. And you're, you're absolutely right. We should all be speaking out um, when, when we see something that goes awry and we should be decent and kind among, among one another always. And hopefully that puts us on a path of, of really true progress as opposed to just cosmetic progress of, of rooting out a bad apple, as you said. Um, one last question, Tina, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you. Um, you know, the Obama administration uh, issued an executive order um, or actually, sorry, through an interpretation of Obamacare and the Affordable Care Act, um, encouraging employers from offering, you know, reproductive health access to things like birth control medicine um, and, and other care and attention to reproductive health. Um, more recently, the Trump administration tried to block that rule um, that exempts employers from um, ACA-based birth control. Um, and then just this week, a, a judge in Philadelphia overturned that. Um, I guess without necessarily opining on the specifics of this case, how can we as societies move past a point in which we keep treating women's access to health uh, coverage and products and just keeping how do we move past creating a wedge issue around the treatment of women that where it becomes a political football involving the courts and the oval office can is there a sense of optimism you have in which we can find real progress to a sense of inclusivity and celebrate each other with that respect with that decency that you spoke to um and with that that same sense of of hope that you know Barack Obama talked about when he said that we can band together for our highest ideals when we work to common our, our, our strength and our fabric of a nation. It, do we have to stop engaging uh, women's issues as political issues to get there, or is there another path forward? 
Well, I don't think there's a way to stop raising them as political issues because they are in the political sphere. And as you see with the, the you know, the, the, the sort of attempted rulemaking by the Trump administration to overturn, you know, the coverage for, you know, birth control um, under the ACA, you know, we're going to have to engage in that. But, but let's back up a second. So the reason why we included birth control coverage, you know, in the ACA is the statutory requirement in the Affordable Care Act was to make sure that women's comprehensive health care, women's preventative comprehensive health care, so prevention services and examinations, annual exams for women, you know, were fully covered without a copay for insurers. Right. Because there had never before been articulated a medical standard for what kind of well woman care should happen. We're all familiar for parents with well baby care, you know, like at your one month mark, you're supposed to do this, and three month mark, you're supposed to do that. For those of us women, as we approach our 30s and our 40s and our 50s, there were no such standards. So we went to medical experts after the statute ACA was passed. We went to medical experts. The Institute of Medicine convened a panel of medical experts to actually lay out as a matter of medical science what services should be included in women's preventative health care. And it was, you know, overwhelming. The evidence is clear that a, that a package of women's preventative health services need to include access to birth control, you know, both because of women's ability to control when and where they will have children, but also for things like cancer treatment and, you know, a whole host of medical reasons why women sure. also need access to birth control as part of preventative health care. That's why that coverage was included. So you can't just simply then, if we base ourselves on science and on the evidence, then I do believe that's where we're going to continue to make progress. And that's probably why I haven't looked at the court opinion, but I'm assuming that's why the court overturned a non-scientific, non-well-reasoned basis for overturning the rule that had been put into place. Um, and we need to keep speaking out about here's the science behind women's health and not be persuaded by people's outdated assumptions about women's sexuality. You know, that's what people are uncomfortable talking about. You know, and I, I say often, I do not understand why women's access to birth control is such a hot button issue when we watch Viagra ads on television at the same hours our children are watching television every night on every right. sports program, on every football game. You know, how many times have you seen a Viagra ad come across? Totally. And we even even pop up ads them. on the internet. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, it's because it's the difference between men's sexuality and women's sexuality. And we have to get over that. Um, and we have to go back to the science and understand it. And I think the more of us who keep talking about it and are willing to talk about it, um, you know, and who will call, you know, call us and say birth control is an accepted part, you know, of a, a women's health care. You know, I think something on the order of 70 to 80 percent of American Catholics have used birth control at some point in their life because, of course, they have. You know, that, that, that is, you know, a reasonable way for men and women to manage a women's reproductive cycles and for women to manage their own health. Um, and I think it's important for us to talk about it in those terms. You're absolutely spot on, Tina. And I think that, as you pointed out, the more types of dialogues that we have that can be about this, but also have fact-driven, scientifically-driven, um, community-driven conversations about investing in the well-being, the healthcare, and just the, the growth potential of, of all people, regardless of gender, but specifically with an eye towards um, the challenges that women face, the better off we can be, um, not only as a society, but I think 
basically in heading off a lot of the day-to-day concerns that don't make the headlines that aren't on the cover of Time magazine, but definitely challenge um, people in their community. So thank you for, for all the work that you're doing and leading at Buckley Sanders. Thank you so much for the service that you, you've showcased to this country and for standing up the, the council itself. Um, and, and thanks for joining the podcast. Oh, well, thank you. And I'm, I'm glad you're doing the podcast. It's important. So thank you. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network, copyright 2017. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Theme music by Chris Thomas. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests, and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of this show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.